This morning I was walking around the house singing a Frank Sinatra song as I was getting ready this morning. Let you in a little bit into my inner life a little bit. Old Blue Eyes, the chairman of the board, running through my mind and my heart. And now the end is here. (laughs) We're at the end of Romans. Well, not actually. We're at the end of where the lectionary has Romans uh, for this current series. It actually goes on two more chapters. But this is the end of our Romans series this morning. And so some of you are just joining us for the first time in the Romans series. Welcome. (laughs) We've We've been working through it throughout the entire summer. And now we come to Romans 14, 1 through 12, our, our last installment here. The Terrell family was a divided family. William Rufus Terrell attended West Point Academy in New York, while his brother James Barber Terrell attended the Virginia Military Institute. That by itself doesn't make for a family divided, right? That by itself. Maybe, maybe a rivalry Uh, as many of us probably hold that same story amongst our own siblings that we went to different different schools. Now, cougars and dogs, take it easy. All right, take it easy. Of course, their father was on the board at the Virginia Military Institute, so that might have swayed things a little bit one side. But he was also a strong supporter of something that could divide, and that thing was succession from the Union. This was the 19th century, and talk of war was brewing. And when the Civil War finally came about, the Confederate Army would welcome William Rufus's father, his brother James, a third brother named Philip, and a brother-in-law married to their sister Emily named George Porterfield. But not William Rufus. No, though he was offered a commission in the Confederate Army, he turned it down and chose loyalty to the Union. You can imagine that this was not popular at the family dinner. (laughs) In fact, the writer of the article that I read about this story says this about the father's response. When he found out his son was contemplating, contemplating staying in the Union, William Henry wrote to William Rufus that he would be a traitor and would be removed from the family history. Definitely uncomfortable at Thanksgiving. At least one other family member would express their own dismay in writing. That's a family divided. One of the great tragedies in this particular instance was that this family would remain divided. The father and his Confederate sons, James and Philip, would all be killed in that same war. But the Terrell family was not the only family to be so divided back then or even now. And though the outcome of division can differ by degree and intensity, The misery and wreckage that accompanies such division reminds us that the stakes are way too high here if we get this wrong. And so getting our common unity, that is, our sense of community, right is important. And all the more when we are talking about the faith community. The Apostle Paul, of course, seems to think so, not only here in Romans, but also in 1 Corinthians and Philippians and elsewhere. And the guidance that he offers here at this point in Romans chapter 14, it's probably some of the best that you're going to find. Maybe even a godsend for the challenges that we face in our own day and our own age around division. So here we go. We've got a reader board out front. Have you seen it? Do you see the reader board out front? Now, we don't got one of those ones that has cool puns or pithy jokes on it, right? You see those? There's whole, like, email chains and websites devoted to sharing church puns and jokes and whatnot. 
We've got Dunlubber down the street taking care of that. <laughs> All right? Ours very simply just says on it what time the service is at and the message, all are welcome. All are welcome. That word welcome is worth consideration here this morning, particularly as a word that the writer of Romans, the Apostle Paul himself, sees as Jesus' community's response toward one another. That this is what Jesus desires of the people of God. Note what it says in the first part of verse 1. Welcome those who are weak in faith. The translators here have included a footnote corresponding to the word faith in the text there that supplies the word convictions as an alternative. And of course that follows the context here. Namely this idea that the welcome is not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. We're not inviting people to a trap. We're not inviting them to uh, berate them or say how weak their faith is. The parties in view here are all members of the Jesus community. These are all people who are part of the family, though potentially holding differing views on various issues. Of course, some of the possibilities of what those issues might have been in that day are picked up. You see in verse 2 where the issue of what can be eaten or not eaten. Uh, and note here that this is not a dig at modern-day vegan or vegetarian diets, but rather it's addressing practices at the time that were associated with the conscience that someone felt a strong conviction to do or not to do. And of course, that conviction, as we have seen noted, is whether it's free to eat or to be restricted in your diet in a particular way. In verse 5, it's picked up with sacred days, which days are to be observed and honored, whereas others might see all days as equally sacred, that there's no special holiday sort of things held, but that every day is a gift from God. Again, this would be a particular conviction of an individual who'd come into the, the church family. In both cases, the reader here is charged to not despise or pass judgment on the other, but instead to welcome. There's that word again. To welcome the other because God has welcomed them, as we see in verse 3. We will see this idea of God's welcome stated once again in the next chapter, in fact. Paul's not done with it. In fact, he goes Romans 14, but then in 15, he picks it up again. And that's the exact same word which leads us to think that there's a bracketed section here between chapter 14.1 and 15.7 that this is all one complete thought that Paul's making here, one argument here around this idea of welcome. And there we read in 15.7, welcome one another therefore just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The Jesus community does not strive for unanimity on all matters. That's not what we're about. That's not even what we're up to. We haven't even been that way from the beginning. We've never been about unanimity, ever. But rather, unity in Jesus Christ for all people. That's what we've been about. And noting that the welcome we extend is offered for the glory of God, we do well as a people today to note that both this welcome and expressions of worship are not disconnected. That they are one in the same. Yesterday we gathered with officers, deacons, and elders, and staff all came together uh, yesterday and on Friday evening uh, for a retreat. And one of the things we, we did as, uh, as a group was kind of looked at what are the core values or what are the values of, of Knox? When we think about this congregation, this community, what are things for us that are important values of, of this church? And we looked at some of the historic values that had been uh, printed, actually on a postcard that I had, and we shared that, kind of walked through those seven values, and then talked about what would be five values we could identify for where we're at today. 
And in the two groups, we kind of created little groups and they became super groups. And both groups had worship was included in their list. That's why I say we do well to know that it's not disconnected, that welcome and worship are not disconnected, particularly if worship is a value of ours. But how do we get here? How do we get to that place where we can be those people that are people of welcome? It fights against all my human and Facebook understanding to be a person that welcomes and sees the other side. How do I become that welcoming people? Well, Paul's going to give us a, a, a few things to consider here. One is this. Mind your own business. Mind your own business. No, not in some disconnected or distant way. I don't mean it that way. But I mean this way. But rather, as Paul says, mind your business. Be fully convinced in your heart and mind of where you're at, where you stand. Test it. Examine it. Make sure that the convictions that you have are well thought through. That your position is sound as we see in verse 5, and then living out from that place for the glory of the Lord. To live for God's glory in that. So we get mental about it. We start minding our, those things. And we live a life that gives thanks to the Lord in verse 6. Number two, look to the other. Look to the other. Stop the navel-gazing. Look to the other. We welcome, as we hear in verses 1 and 3, we don't judge and pass judgment. We're not their master. I'm not your master at all. But rather, we're all servants serving the Lord Jesus Christ, who's our master, together. And so as fellow servants serving the Lord, as we see in verses 4 and 8, we offer mutual respect to one another. We resolve not to put a stumbling block in the way of, of others or a hindrance in the way of our brother and sister as they go to exercise their faith. We see that in verse 13. We are to put up with the failings of others as if we extend our text out to chapter 15, verse 1, and build them up, 15, verse 2. And the motivation here, of course, is Jesus' own example. We're modeling ourselves after Jesus Christ, that this then is how we are to live, according to verse 7, and that we ultimately are accountable for how we conduct ourselves. That's what we hear in verse 12. The third thing is this. Let small things remain small things. Let them remain small things. Adiaphora is the word used by theologians when talking about things that exist outside of moral categories, something that in and of itself is neither approved nor condemned. It's all the extra stuff. Personally important, but not essentially required of all people. Perhaps you're uh, familiar with the formula credited to the 17th century Lutheran theologian Rupertus Maldinius. Anybody familiar with old Rupert? <laughs> Oftentimes this gets credit to Augustine, but it's actually much later than that. It belongs to Rupert. It's the first one to put it in print. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Adiaphora is those non-essentials. That's the non-essentials. But when a posture of welcome is not adopted, these non-essentials can quickly become cause for splintering and shredding a community, faith or otherwise. And this even when we know one another, perhaps especially when we know one another. I know you've heard of Sigmund Freud, right? Freud's got a category here. 
the narcissism of small differences. According to Wikipedia, my second favorite website next to YouTube, I actually donate to them annually. The narcissism of small differences is the idea that the more a relationship or community shares commonalities, the more likely the people in it are to engage in interpersonal feuds and mutual ridicule because of hypersensitivity to minor differences perceived in each other. Now, you may not know that definition, but you know your relationship with your siblings, <laughs> right? That's the narcissism of small differences where the non-essentials turn into a battle royal. Have you ever seen that one? Have you ever seen in a community you've been part of, faith or otherwise? Familiarity is no guarantee of playing well together. That's where the posture of welcome comes in. That's where it comes in. The Jesus community assuming the God slash Jesus posture. Welcome with open arms fellow believers who don't see things the way you do. That's what Eugene Peterson writes as his translation of 14.1 in the message. Open arms are the promise our sign out front commits to the Jesus community at the very least when we print those words out there. But really something more once you start parsing the word all. But that's not in this message. But that's a sign. And those are words, mere breath. Imagine the possibilities here that might come if we individually and we corporately pressed into this kind of life together, if this is how we lived our lives, with these open arms and this sense of welcome, think about the transformation that would occur in your family, in your neighborhood, amongst your coworkers, and here in this church and congregation as we serve the community and we serve those around us. It would be absolutely transformational it would affect people's lives. It would make them feel a lot different about the life they're leading. And it might actually make you feel different about the life you're living. Welcoming one another. Offering mutual respect. Together living under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. God's welcome then being extended. We, of course, would realize in all of this the power of God to save the Jew, the Gentile, all people. And we might echo with Paul what he says in chapter 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to save all who believe. Friends, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love this morning and that love that's been poured out to us has been modeled for us in the life and the love of Jesus Christ. And so as we continue to ponder these words, we, we ponder that wonderful gift that we have in the gospel, a message of liberation and freedom, and a message that's extended far beyond these walls to all people. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be a people of welcome. Help us to live into this, to press into this place that we might offer the welcome that you've offered to us and that you've given to us freely, that we too might offer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.